Hey guys, welcome to another episode of The Rhythm of Us. We are your hosts, Chris and Jenny Gravy, and we've got another awesome guest for you today. Yeah, we are so excited for this episode. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed this conversation with our new friend, Douglas McKelvey. Um, He is the author of Every Moment Holy. Um, It's a beautiful devotional book um, full of liturgies or prayers that you can pray for specific events in your life. Um, So there's everything from a prayer for beekeeping, and there's a liturgy for changing diapers and cleaning up. Just all of the ordinary moments of our life, Douglas has come and put a prayer or liturgy to, just to remind us of the sacredness of the ordinary tasks, really, um, that we're putting our hands to. It has just been such a blessing to me as a mom and just as a follower of Christ. It's been really powerful. Are there any prayers about husbands <laughs> and really needing them to get it together? I'm sure there is. <laughs> I don't know. We don't need to read those. I don't though. know that I've seen them. I've been gone. You haven't been looking for, for those? Them. Yeah. Because mm. um, my husband's pretty awesome. So but awesome. I'm sure there probably are. Yeah. You know what was so cool is we got some time to spend with Douglas talking about his journey, how this all came to be. And then ultimately we're talking about the brand new project that he has coming up. So depending on when you're listening to this, volume three will be out on November 4th. Yeah. We hope you'll go and grab a copy. It's going to be so incredible. This time he's brought in some friends to join him to contribute to this book of prayers. Um, So we're really excited for everyone to get their hands on a copy of this. This conversation was so good. I will give you a heads up that is a little bit long. (laughs) And I kept praying through sections of it that I could cut. And then God would just really honestly speak to me through those sections. So there was not a lot that I could cut. It is so good, so wise, so rich. You are going to love this conversation with Doug McKelvey. And one last thing before we get started, there's a fun fact. Oh my goodness, yes. I wish that I had known prior to this interview all the songs that he had written. I didn't realize he was such a prolific songwriter. I knew he had been in the Nashville scene in the 90s, like writing songs. But I mean, this guy is written for Kenny Rogers. I mean, Switchfoot. And uh, Point of Grace, Circle Boom. of Friends. I know you sang that song in youth group. Favorite song, yeah. <laughs> so anyways, guys, we cannot wait to introduce you to Douglas McKelvey and this incredible conversation that we got to have with him. And we just hope that it will bless you as much as it did us. Let's dive in. All right. Well, hey there, Doug. Welcome to the show. We're glad you're here. Thank you, Chris and Jenny. Happy to be here. Well, we're going to have a lot of fun today, but we can't wait to dive into this brand new project that you've been working on. But, you know, for someone who's listening that maybe hears the word liturgy, you know, it's a, it's a big word and maybe they've never heard it before. So how would you best describe what that word means for someone who maybe is hearing it for the first time? Well, there's a definition that most people who are somewhat familiar with the word um tend to think of it in terms of a certain type of church service, a a highly liturgical service where there's a a set form to the service and there are specific prayers that are prayed, um, some of them weekly, some of them, you know, during certain seasons of the church calendar. But really the, the word in that sense refers to the, the order and content of a worship service so every church has a liturgy whether they recognize that or not but then there's this even broader sense of the word that i i think is very helpful in the discussion and gets more to the heart of the way i 
tend to think about liturgy. And that is that it is the repeated practices that become part of the rhythms of our lives that have a shaping effect on us that either serve to reorient our hearts more and more toward the reality of the kingdom of God and of where all history is heading with the return of Jesus and the new creation and all things restored. Or we have liturgies, rhythms in our lives that are deforming us in that sense, that are moving our eyes and our hearts away from that eternal perspective and are, you know, over time causing us to focus more and more on material things that we might want, on desires, on, you know, even on things that aren't in and of themselves bad, but they become bad when they begin to occupy that place of central focus in our hearts and lives and in our families. So, you know, there's, we could probably spend a whole podcast episode just <laughs> talking about unpacking what liturgy means, but that's probably the shortest kind of overview that I could give for someone who maybe isn't familiar with the word at all. Yeah, I love that. Did you grow up with liturgies being a part of your faith and a part of your life? Well, in terms of the more formal liturgies of the church, I did not. I grew up in circles that would have looked very suspiciously on anything <laughs> that wasn't utterly spontaneous. Ah. <laughs> so, yeah, so there there has been a journey for me over the years from, you know, from the place that I was in as a kid to um to having such a deep appreciation for the resources that have been crafted over hundreds of years by believers and that have that generation after generation have borne witness to the fact that yes there are there are expressions here that are accurate representations of, of what scripture is teaching and uh, you know and and summations of that and and you know at a certain point as i've over the years wrestled with these questions and and had various conversations about liturgy with people um at some point i realized well people who are in the place that i was where i was growing up who might be suspicious of the idea of well you know how could the spirit of god be involved in a prayer that's pre-written and you know how could you pray it and mean it but what i realized was well pretty much all of us do that with worship songs and praise songs and hymns that we sing in church we don't look at it and say how could something that was pre-written that someone thoughtfully wrestled over and and prayerfully created spent hours or days or weeks you know working on various iterations of this to get it to express something true in a way that could be heartfelt and we sing it and it becomes our expression right, right? and we yeah. we don't have any problem with that and i think that those kind of liturgies of the church both things that are like the book of common prayer um, it's a wonderful resource for the the theological richness and the uh, the aesthetic beauty 
of a lot of the expressions of, of the prayers in that. But also when we look at the history of the church and how like the early Celtic Christians had such a vision for God being present with them in each moment of the day. So they had these beautifully written prayers for um, covering the hearth fire at night and for, you know, rekindling the flame in the morning and for milking the cows. And, you know, and it's not that they were theologically accurate in every aspect of their faith, but they did have that real sense and and some extremely beautiful and, and still theologically rich prayers that did come out of that time as well that um you know so so this is something that when we look at the history of the church and our place in that these kind of liturgical expressions that are intended to become part of the rhythms of our lives so that they have a shaping power are part of the the rich heritage of the body of Christ not just across geography but across time mm-hmm. And so I think even that nuance is, is is a part of what these kinds of liturgical prayers can help us to reclaim, I think, is a, a sense of the oneness of the body of Christ, that that cloud of witnesses um, is a real thing. Yeah. Right? That it's not just about those of us who are walking the earth right now at a given time. We are part of something much larger a story that God is telling through his people across history. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Um, I want to go back to when you originally launched this project in the first volume of liturgies, what kind of inspired you to start writing liturgies in the first place? I know that like it has just meant so much to me and to our family. I've given it probably as a gift to everybody I know in my life. <laughs> and um, it just struck a chord with so many people. What got you started on the idea of writing books of liturgies? Like I mentioned a few moments ago, the church circles that I grew up in um, would have looked suspiciously at, at this sort of thing. Um, but there was there wasn't really a coherent scriptural framework and worldview. Um, What I grew up with was just a lot of isolating of particular scriptures, cherry picking, not no sense that, that a given scripture needs to be understood in the context of all of the rest of scripture. So just a lot of odd kind of, you know, buffet, (laughs) (laughs) Um, theology i guess and and understanding of scripture and at a certain point during my college years all of that kind of construct just fell apart because it, it really wasn't workable it didn't it didn't make sense it wasn't accurate to the story that god is telling through scripture and during that time, I uh, I was introduced to the Book of Common Prayer, and that felt so different to me in that there was something in it I recognized, oh, there are things here that I can trust, that there there is this more thought out and biblically accurate theology that's being expressed in, in these prayers and and in the in the summations of of themes of scripture and 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 what's being taught there and there was also something about the aesthetic beauty of it 
um, that there was a sensitivity to the rhythm of words, which was something that even as a little kid, I was very sensitive to, and I loved poetry and, and, you know, the cadence of song lyrics and that sort of thing. So on that level, the attention to beauty that, you know, beauty was kind of implicitly recognized and, and elevated as something that should be a part of our expression. So I think the combination of those two things kind of grabbed my heart and fascinated me with that. But then if we if we flash forward um, a lot of years after I'd moved to Nashville and worked as a, a song lyricist for a dozen years or so, and then moved into some script and, and video work and done all sorts of different things. But I was, I was working on, this probably would have been 2015, 20, yeah, probably 2015. I was, I was working on a novel manuscript and becoming frustrated with my own inability to be disciplined every day. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'd probably gone for a couple months um, being very undisciplined. I would sit down with the best of intentions every day and then just end up, you know, getting nothing done, really just distracting myself. Um, And one morning I just thought I need something that will focus me. Um, I need a prayer I can pray when I sit down to write fiction that will reorient my heart uh, to my creator and then to the, the stewardship of whatever gifts I've been given to exercise, you know, in the service of others and to reorient me in relationship to the community of people that I hope to serve by the work that I'm going to do today. So I spent some time and wrote a liturgy for fiction writers. And I just, because I, I loved that liturgical form, I thought, well, I'm going to impose that on the prayer that I'm writing. And, um, mm-hmm. and so then I sent that to Andrew Peterson, the singer, songwriter, and and author because we were doing a conference session together a couple of weeks after that. And after I'd written that prayer, I thought, oh, maybe this would be kind of a unique and interesting way for you know, us to close this session is to have everyone pray this together. And so I sent it to him and asked him what he thought. And he responded and said, this is great, but I wish I had a liturgy for beekeeping and he listed a couple other things that are hobbies and interests of his. And just when I read his response immediately, I recognized that, oh yeah, this, this isn't just a little quirky prayer that I've written for myself. There's actually something in this model that could really serve the body of Christ. So at that point, the idea just quickly expanded in my head. I mean, I think within a half hour, I had a, a book proposal sketched out, you know, and was brainstorming a, a list of, of potential topics. Yeah. So, the, so really the idea, you know, from that first seed of the, the first prayer with no vision for anything beyond that to it, um, to the vision being fleshed out, um, pretty much the way the book ended up being, even though 
even though it was a process of a year or so to write it from that point. But I don't think it took more than a half hour for that vision just to, to arrive fully formed. Man, that's so cool. And I love that you shared a couple of examples because it's so unique, you know, fiction writers and beekeepers. And so, you know, the liturgies that you write are very specific, like we're saying, to the situation and the person. So I guess the question is, how do you kind of go about putting yourself in that person's shoes, right? Like for that prayer and for their experience? Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. And there are probably a lot of different answers depending on the particular topic. Uh, something like beekeeping, to some degree, it for me to write that as someone who's not a beekeeper, <laughs> I'm exercising the same muscles that I do when I'm getting inside the head of a character if I'm writing mm. fiction, right? That, that that's a muscle that I've exercised for decades. Mm -hmm. And it's easy enough to do some research mm -hmm. online and, you know, get, you know, find some of the, the main themes or, you know, information about a particular topic. But then, you know, I, I would say some of the prayers in volume one, but especially with volume two, which is a topically focused volume on death, grief, and hope, right? For those seasons of life when we're, facing our own mortality or grieving a loss. There were certain topics in there that I really approached with fear and trembling and apprehension and a, a strong sense that I didn't have any business writing about them. A prime example of that would be a liturgy for the loss of a child. My wife and I have gone through two miscarriages in our marriage but we haven't lost a five-year-old or an eight-year-old or, you know, so, so it seemed like that I was running the risk of a level of presumption to try to write something that would articulate accurately what is on the heart of a parent who's walking through that kind of loss. So the voices of community became so important for those kinds of prayers and having friends and acquaintances who had suffered those kind of losses, who were so graciously willing to open a window to their own pain, their own grief journey and walk with me through the writing of that so that I could write a draft, I could send it to them and they could just be completely honest and tell me, well, these parts are working. These parts, you know, aren't doing anything for us. This thing you said, you know, is going to be hurtful to some people in our situation. And so those tended to take a long time and a lot of iterations. And you know, those, those voices of other people, you know, in the, in the community of those who were grieving, um, who would weigh in and, and just help to shape those prayers until finally you know, they landed in a place where those people would say, yes, this would have been helpful to me, or this is helpful to me now in the midst of this process. And I can sign off on it and, and say, yes, this, you know, this will be of benefit to people who are walking through the same thing that I am.
So, so yeah, to, I mean, the short answer to your question would be that it's probably a little bit different for each topic, just depending on what it is and whether it's something that I've experienced in the past or I've experienced something similar that I can model it on or you know, it's something that I need to, to go outside of myself and, and find other people who are walking through something that I've never experienced, but who can help me to shape that. Yeah, that's so good. I think one of the things I love most about these volumes is that sometimes when you've gone through something so traumatic or something so painful, it can be hard to find the words that you want to offer mm-hmm. up. For that situation. So I would imagine, especially in those moments of grief and suffering, that it's so helpful for people to find specific detailed prayers that they can put words to the situation that they're in. What are some of the stories? I'm sure you have so many responses to these volumes after this is now your third. Um, what are some of the stories that have come from people who are in those situations who find this book and stumble on a prayer that they can pray in a painful situation? Hmm. Well, I think the probably the most consistent comment and feedback that we've received, um, both for the, the painful kind of situations that, that you're referencing, Jenny, but also for some of the more everyday ones, like changing a diaper mm-hmm. or, or, you know, whatever it might be, is that people do say it gave me words when I didn't have any words. It named for me what was swirling inside my heart and mind that I couldn't articulate. I didn't, you know, being in the midst of it, feeling the emotion of this, I couldn't unpack it. But the words of this prayer gave a name to those things and allowed me, it, it held up a mirror to what's actually going on in my heart. And I was able to better understand my own experience and emotions, even as I was in the process of articulating these words in a prayer to God. So yeah, that I, I think that is the most consistent kind of comment that we've that we've had from people who have, you know, come across one of the prayers at a at a timely moment in their own life. Yeah. I love that. And I think that, you know, you mentioned the changing diaper at liturgy, which is one of my favorites actually. And it's funny because I'm in a season now where I'm not changing diapers. Our oldest is 18 or about to be 18. He's a senior this year and our youngest is six. And so I'm not in that, but I still really resonate with that prayer because what it does for me And what so many of the liturgies do for me is it's a reminder that everything we do is sacred. You know, Mm -hmm. it it points to the holiness behind the ordinary tasks that we do every day. And I was literally reading that one yesterday. This is the first week of school for our kids. And I turned to that one and I didn't know why, but I read it and it was so poignant to me because it points to that it all matters caring for these kids all these years, you know, our Mm. son's about to graduate high school. And it was such a beautiful reminder to me that caring for him for these 18 years, it matters. All of it matters. The changing of the diapers and the making of the lunches and all of it. 
you just point so beautifully to the holiness and the sacredness of the tasks that we've been given that sometimes can lose that, that miracle. You know, we just see them as ordinary when really they're so miraculous. Well, thank you. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's dive into this third project, right? Every Moment Holy, Volume 3, and I love the title, The Work of the People. So um, can you unpack kind of because, you know, you had Volume 1, you had you talked about death and grief and mm-hmm. hope in the second one. But in this one, it's The Work of the People. So why was that kind of the subtitle of this? Well, shortly after Volume 1 was published, and Volume 1 is just topically diverse, you know, kind of just a cross-section of, of many different parts of life and experiences and, and emotions. Um, volume two was was very focused, like you said, on, on death, grief, and hope. But early on, after volume one was published, I had the idea that at some point I would like to do a volume where I would invite other authors to contribute liturgical prayers. And that idea had been simmering and every so often I would discuss it with my publisher. And, you know, I, I kind of thought it would maybe be volume four, volume five, if we got that far into the series. But late last year, as we discussed it, um, it just it seemed like the time was right to, to move forward with that idea. So the work of the people is actually one of the definitions of the word liturgy. And it's interesting because there's, I mean, there's a a bit of nuance there. I guess theologians have some debate as to whether uh, the Greek word, which I don't know Greek, but I think it's liturgia, um, which is what our word liturgy comes from, whether it's best translated the work of the people or the work for the people. You know, the work of the people, meaning what is before us, what we are called to do by God in response to the work of Christ, the work for the people being what Christ has done for us. And and I would argue that it's that it's really both, that it's the work for the people that Christ has done and the work of the people that we are doing in response, which is really the work that God is doing through us. You know, the good works that he has called us to and that he will bring to completion, as, as Paul tells us. So from beginning to end, it's it's all the work of Christ for us, in us, through us. So it it just made a lot of sense on all these levels as a subtitle for a book that was really going to be a community effort, right? That volume one and two were a lot of me sitting alone in a room for one, <laughs> for one year for volume one and two years to write volume two. But this one, you know, it was a lot of work and it was an intensive seven months of, of labor, but there was a joyfulness to it because I was having these constant conversations uh, with all these other writers as we were working through um, their ideas and and the the different iterations of their prayers, and um, there was a lot of fellowship actually, and and so many significant conversations that happened because we were wrestling together 
through these, you know, nuances of, of theology. And, you know, it's been very important to me um, and to the publisher that these books have a, a, a theological accuracy to them. Right. So, so there, there have been lots of, lots of discussions, lots of questions, lots of taking various prayers to pastors and having them weigh in on, on certain things before we publish these books. But the, the joy of volume three and what makes it different is that, um, while it's topically broad, um, addresses many different parts of life, the way that volume one did, there are 60 different authors whose work is represented here. And some of them wrote multiple prayers, others just wrote one. We also included prayers from other times in the history of the church, some of them you know, more than a thousand years old, but that are still beautiful and relevant to the body of Christ today. So it's just much more reflective of the body of Christ, um, you know, working together in community to offer something uh, of service, you know, to the, to the larger body of Christ around us. Yeah, that's so good. How do you recommend people use these books? Is there um, a practical way that you offer for, for people as far as instructions on um, how do you use these liturgies in your daily, weekly life? We've included some notes at the beginning of each of the volumes that kind of give some suggestions for how to do that. So for anyone who who gets a hold of the copy of the book, there is that little one page essay of, of you know some some suggestions. And over the last few years, people have have certainly found a lot of different ways to utilize the prayers. But from the beginning, my hope was that we would be offering a resource that whether it's an individual, a married couple, a family, a small group at a church, you know, a whole church, an organization, whatever it might be, that there would be certain prayers in these books that they could very naturally incorporate into the existing rhythms of their lives, right? Like a family that goes camping together on a regular basis could start using a liturgy for those who sleep in tents, you know, on the first night around the campfire every time they go camping. So that this becomes a part of the rhythm of their life as a family together, that when they do this activity, they pause at the beginning of it to have that moment of reorienting the heart to the truer story that God is telling and of their place in it, and of recognizing how even this activity that we do together you know, going out into the, into the woods or to the mountains or wherever it is and, and enjoying the beauty of creation here, that this isn't just this isolated thing. It, it actually fits into this narrative history of redemption and, and where everything is moving. And, and so I think that's how I would encourage someone 
to look at these, um, especially volume one and volume three, is to, you know, to look through the table of contents and kind of get an idea of the different subjects that are there and think about which ones might make sense. Um, you know, the a liturgy for feasting with friends. I've, I've had a lot of feedback on that one that, that people have used it for holiday celebrations like a Thanksgiving or a Christmas dinner. Um, but also just for a time when they've invited several friends over for an evening to eat and enjoy fellowship together. And I've had a, a number of people with that one just express how, how it completely changed the tone in the room and of the evening for everyone. And even people telling me, you know, I, I was watching my kids' faces as we were praying through this and just seeing how their expressions revealed that there was this awakening sense of of there being eternal echoes to what we're doing here that there's significance outside or beyond that transcends just that oh we're having good food and and friends over but that there is an echo of the eternal feast of the of the wedding supper of the lamb that all of history is is headed toward for the children of God. Um, and that that's actually the joy that we're sensing the echoes of in this feast that we're having here in this moment is because it's aligning with where God is drawing us. So it's awakening a yearning for something eternal so I think that, that that's the way someone can start using this book is, is to go through the table of contents, just find some of the topics that, that are already a part of your life and then try to consciously, you know, start using that liturgy to, to set the tone, to recalibrate the heart, to bring the eternal perspective into that everyday activity each time that you engage in it. Love, Love it. Well, uh, you're launching your third kid out of the world, right? <laughs> volume three. Here we are. It's, it's going out in the world. And so inside of these three different volumes, you know, are so many beautiful liturgies. So I guess the question, everybody, you know, a parent's not supposed to have a favorite, but look, I'm going to ask you anyway, <laughs> what is, do you have a favorite liturgy across these three volumes that you love to go to? Well, it was, it was easy to answer when there was only one volume. <laughs> <laughs> so I might just default to that answer because um, volume three, I haven't, it's a new baby. You know, I haven't, I haven't lived with it long enough to, right. yeah. to feel like I, I, I know what its personality is and who it is in the same sense yet. Um, the one in volume one that, for whatever reason, just it resonated the most with me, maybe because it's, it's such an expression of the yearning in my own heart, you know, the yearning for that new creation, for Christ to return and all of this to be made right. You know, I've, I've lived well over five decades now. I'm heading toward my sixth and and it seems like the the longer we journey through life, the more there is the weight of the experience of sorrow and grief. 
right? And as followers of Jesus, we don't grieve as those without hope, but the desire for that hope to be realized and for all of the brokenness of this world to be made right just becomes more and more of a, a present reality. So there's a liturgy that I wrote for volume one that on one level I did have in mind friends of mine who are ceramic artists or potters or um, you know who work in in these physical mediums of wood and stone and metal and clay and so the the liturgy I wrote was a liturgy for those who work in wood and stone and metal and clay but the whole time I was writing it I I knew that that very specific topic was just a doorway into something that's applicable to all believers. And the refrain of that prayer that's repeated several times is, I'm here to rehearse the new creation in the making of this thing. So it's this recognition that the work I'm doing as a follower of Jesus, what, whatever it is, whatever kind of of ministry, whatever kind of faithful service to my family, my community, my employer, that whatever it is that we are individually called to, we are called to do that in light of the new creation. And so there is this way that as we say yes to those things that God puts in front of us and we we step into those, into those relationships, into those labors, um, that we are rehearsing the new creation. We are advancing the kingdom of God that is breaking in even through these small acts of, of faithfulness and, and love and, and mercy that God has called us to do as part of the living out of what it means to, to offer ourselves as, as living sacrifices. So I, I think for all of those reasons, that particular prayer liturgy for those who work in wood and stone and metal and clay has just resonated with me from, from the time that I was wrestling through the writing of it. Um, so that's, that's the first one that comes to mind. That's great. Love it. All right. Well, this has been so good. Thank you for doing this. Before we wrap, we love to ask, kind of, especially our first-time guests, these three questions. What is a book that's changed your life? What's a habit that's changed your life? And what advice would you give to the younger you? So what's a book that's changed your life? A book that has changed my life. Man, um, I mean, there, there are a lot of books that have changed my life. This is probably one that I would expect you've, you've gotten this answer before. But one of them, I'm, I'm thinking of it because it was fairly early on. I mean, it's probably early college. Um, but I came across Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And I hadn't been taught to think. And the ways that he applied this rigor to the thought process of, of looking at and evaluating the claims of Christ and Christianity. You know, the, the first time I read it, there was a whole lot that went over my head, but there were a lot of things that, that stuck too, that, that landed and, and made sense. But, but it also opened this whole other world to me, I think of saying, oh, there's, 
there's this whole other way to to wrestle with scripture and with with the things that you know figuring out what i what i believe and why and so i think that was very significant i think also tolkien's the lord of the rings i think i was 13 when i encountered that and on a conscious level would not have probably picked up much in the way of the way his faith was being incarnated in the form of of this story that he was telling right of the the themes of it and and just a lot of what's what's embedded there um the ideas like of of the weak things confounding the strong um you know there there was something very significant there just about the way his redemptive storytelling shaped my own imagination in ways that I wasn't aware of. So I guess I probably owe a lot to the Inklings in general <laughs> for a lot of different reasons. Um, and what was the second question? Second question is, what's a habit that's changed your life? One thing that comes to mind initially is just that over the last few years, my wife and I have made a point of taking trips together to go explore new places on a, a regular basis, multiple times a year, which was something that, you know, through all the years of raising our kids, we just didn't, we didn't have the, the money to do much of that. And logistically, we couldn't do it. But I think that that habit has helped us in this new season of life to kind of reconnect in in a new way and to to enjoy exploring something outside ourselves together mm. you know and sometimes that creates a space where without even specifically focusing on oh how do we reconnect in our relationship it's kind of a a byproduct of it because you've you've sort of created this space where together you're doing something and you're moving toward the same thing yeah so that that kind of habit of adventuring together um you know which kind of leads to dreaming together and vision casting together of um of what the next season of life might look like so that's a habit that has i think changed changed our marriage in this new season of it yeah we we love it we We tell people all the time like when you go with your kids that's a trip when you go together you're on vacation (laughs) so i love that you're adventuring and vacationing together that's really cool so the third question is what advice would you give to the younger you i would probably start with very practical advice maybe even a take the stance of a football coach trying to get a better performance out of of his player because something that i've struggled with over the years is just being disciplined day by day in the moment to be faithful again and again in a world that's so full of easy distractions and so many choices right in front of you that are going to be more entertaining or easier than 
this long obedience in one direction. And looking back, I would encourage my younger self to apply that kind of faithfulness day by day. I think, you know, I've described the process of writing the Every Moment Holy books as one in which my primary contribution was just to not say no. I believed that this was a work that God was calling me to, that, you know, one of those things that's referenced in scripture is a good work prepared in advance for us to do. Scripture tells us that God prepares us for these works and that he prepares these works for us, right? And every day through the multi-year process, I did not want to actually sit down and try to do this. It was too, it was too daunting. It was too hard. I felt too inadequate and insecure. I've said before that I, I so closely empathized with the kid who had the, you know, the two fish and the, the few small loaves, because I knew that what I was bringing was utterly inadequate to the task at hand. And that unless God himself was pleased to take that insufficient offering to take, you know, my poverty, my lack, my weakness, my fears, and to somehow bless and break and multiply and distribute that as he saw fit for the nurturing of his people, that it wasn't going to happen. It was just going to be an empty exercise. And so day after day to come back into that place where my prayer would just be, God, you have to show up in the midst of this. You have you have to take this and make it so that the whole is more than the sum of the parts or what am I even doing here? Because, you know, either you've called me to this and you're going to bring it to completion or you haven't and it's just a waste of time. <laughs> and I do believe you've called me to it. So once again, today, this hour, I'm not going to say no. I'm going to sit down, I'm going to open my laptop, and I'm going to see if I can get a few lines written. And I think that's the posture that we're called to, but um, it's not always a pleasant process, right? Because <laughs> right. it it's like it strips away all of our pretense, and it just leaves us exposed and and vulnerable, which is the place that that God seems to want us to be before he makes his strength known in the midst of our weakness. And if I could somehow communicate that to my younger self, that just give yourself to that process. Don't, don't waste days and weeks and months and years in, you know, avoiding that and distracting mm -hmm. yourself from it. And, you know, just learn what it means day by day, moment by moment. To not say no, to yield yourself to whatever that process is that God is drawing you into. Mm, that's so good. Love it. Well, hey, congratulations on 
kind of walking through that process and, and writing and being a part of these three projects. I know it's blessed our family and blessed so many others. So we just want to say thank you for your time here today, Doug. It really means so much to us, and we will be praying for this project that's kind of moves itself out of the world, and you get to figure out what this baby is and yeah. <laughs> how it works and all that. So thanks again for your time, man. Well, thank you, Chris and Jenny. Well, thank you so much for listening today. We hope this episode blessed you and we would love to hear from you. Take a minute, leave us a review on iTunes, hit us up on our website, therhythmofus.com, and you can also find us on social media. We love hearing how these conversations and these podcasts speak directly to you. Also, you can find all the info for today's episode, all the books and links mentioned in our show notes over at our website, therhythmofus.com. All right, well, that's a wrap for today's episode. We will catch you next time on The Rhythm of Us.